before we leave the mysterious secret world of charms and spells in which anything is possible, we must dwell for a moment on a certain, shall we say, unsavory item in the witch's magic armory in olden times, the Hand of Glory. Are you familiar with this deadly and terrifying talisman of death? Well, you should be. At one time, they say, no witch would think of being without one. It was usually kept on the mantle above the chimney piece, along with other grisly relics and paraphernalia of magic. What is it? Well, let me tell you. According to a medieval instruction, in order to prepare the hand of glory, you must go to a gallows beside a highway and cut off the right hand of a felon who is hanging there. Wrap the severed hand in a shroud and squeeze it out as dry as you can. Then put it into an earthen jar with a powder composed of salt, saltpeter, and hot peppers. Leave it in the pot for two weeks. Then take it out and place it in the hot sun during the dog days until it becomes quite dry. In this hand, you will then place a candle using the hand as a candlestick. You will make the candle of virgin wax, sesame, and the fat of a gibbeted fellow. When the candle is lit and carried in the hand of glory, it will stupefy anyone you meet with terrible magic and render them motionless, thus incapable of resisting your will at all. As the ancient verses go, wherever that terrible light shall burn, Vainly the sleeper may toss and turn. His leaden eyes shall ne'er unclose so long as that magical taper glows. Life and treasure shall he command who knoweth the charm of the glorious hand. folks let's start with the potential bad news first it looks like you're stuck with just me again this week but in all honesty who are we kidding it's not that bad right well at least i at least i hope not for first time listeners and familiar friends welcome to that would be rad we're a podcast that majors in 80s and 90s nostalgia comic culture all things paranormal and minors in retro video games tabletop rpgs pre-internet mysteries, and raising our kids to be half as cool as we were back in the 80s. I'm your host, Woody Brown, and hopefully my co-host, Tyler Bentz, will be back next week. Okay, now on to the good news. Today, we are going to be diving into some really rad, really strange, but absolutely true history. You know, last week, we talked about whether or not objects can hold spirits or perhaps even energies, whether it's good or evil. And based on many stories throughout time, I'd say that there's certainly a pretty dang compelling case that points towards, yeah, it's pretty dang probable. 
In fact, many of you listeners, after our episode aired last week, reached out to tell us some of your encounters with items you believe to be haunted, cursed, or at the very least, harboring something. I'm going to go out on a limb here uh, and say, for the most part, it would seem that there are many of us, myself included, that would avoid such objects like the plague. Um, But all we have to do is flip through the pages of our own sort of dark human history to learn that there are plenty of people that apparently not just seek out these totems, but they even create them for their own purposes. I have my coffee cup full to the top, and I'm ready to dive into this. Our conversation begins today with the Hand of Glory, which just right out of the gate, honestly, sounds so crazy that it seems like fiction from the start. It's a dried, sometimes pickled hand of a hanged man. Now, I don't know about you listeners, but I'm used to seeing, you know, like a pickled egg at a convenience store, maybe even a pickled pig's foot. You know, we do live in the South. But a pickled hand? The folklore surrounding the Hand of Glory dates back to the medieval era, and arguably long before that. So, a traditional form of punishment under Sharia Islamic law and in medieval Europe involved publicly amputating a criminal's body part. Often, it would end up being the one that was used uh, for the crime. So, in essence, the pain of the amputation and, of course, the the shame of this permanent missing appendage was considered to be the fair and just punishment for the criminal. And as a gruesome bonus, the displayed severed limb functioned as a, well, like a warning, a sinister warning to any and all onlookers that would even be considering following this guy's footsteps. In other words, it said like, look, if you follow in this guy's footsteps, you're going to wind up with the same fate. Handless. Now, the origins of this practice is believed to likely be a derivative of the Code of Hammurabi. Now, just in case you didn't pay attention in your World Civ class freshman year of college, kind of like myself, I bet you'd still remember the old adage, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Yep, that's Hammurabi's code. It's the ancient set of laws that get this dates back to around 1772 BC. And it is one of the oldest translated writings in the entire world. So the basic legal principle being that exact reciprocity is used to distribute what they would consider the appropriate justice. So, for example, if a person, you know, caused the death of another person, the killer would be put to death. If a thief stole from somebody, whack, they chop their hand off, etc. I mean, truly, this makes the scarlet letter look like a walk in the park. It turns out later in Europe, though, cutting someone's hands off was kind of a go-to punishment. There's a photo of a painting I found, uh that I'll share on our Instagram page this week that says, he who does not keep peace shall lose his hand. 
I mean, that's a pretty intense no fighting sign for a pub, right? Back then, it, it wasn't uncommon for severed hands of criminals to be displayed like relics to prevent future grievances. You know, a thief's arm still dangles in St. James the Greater, a church in Prague, literally. To this day, you can go and visit this church and hanging up on the right-hand side as you kind of enter the uh, sanctuary is the withered, blackened arm hanging from a hook and a chain from the ceiling. The haunch of venison in Wiltshire, England is a 684-year-old pub that was famous for its display of a cursed gambler's hand. Sub-legend has it that the hand was amputated from a gambler who was caught cheating during a game of cards a few hundred years ago. According to the workers at the pub, a butcher chopped the gambler's hand off and threw it into the fireplace. It wasn't until 1911 when the pub was kind of going through a renovation that someone discovered this uh, gruesome relic and ever since... It was stored in a locked glass case with a pack of 18th century playing cards. Now, don't get your passports out just yet. Sadly, in 2010, some thieves unscrewed the glass cabinet and stole the criminal's relic, which, boy, I wonder what, uh, I wonder what those guys are up to now. Hey, guys that, uh, that stole the hand, if you happen to be listening to this podcast, we'd love to have you on. Folks, we got to remember that we're talking about a long, long time ago. We're talking about a time when not only was medicine scarce, but the medical knowledge um, wasn't very profound in a lot of ways. And so you're thinking about a time when medicine is scarce, hangings are common. Well, it was also said that the hand of a drowned or hanged man could be used to heal. It was believed that if you passed the hand of a dead man over, let's say, like a growth, um, it would cure the, the swelling or, you know, make it disappear completely. So severed and preserved hands are actually commonplace in the amateur physician's sort of toolkit. You know, like I said, diagnosis and treatment of illnesses was pretty limited in the early ages. But when did these items that served as a gruesome warning or a medical aid evolve into something that had more supernatural powers? When did they become the hand of glory? The stories and origins differ slightly, but two distinct mentions occur in separate texts. The first was in the Compendium Maleficarum, which was a witch hunter's manual written in Latin by the Italian priest Francesco Maria Guazzo and published in, and published in Milan, Italy in 1608. At the time, it was widely regarded as the authoritative manuscript on witchcraft, and it includes all kinds of just crazy stuff like profound discussions on witches and pacts with the devil, finely detailed descriptions of witches' powers, poisons, crimes, sleep-inducing spells and methods for removing them, apparitions of demons and specters, diseases caused by demons, and a plethora of other topics. 
Oh, I found this and I thought this was just really interesting too. So it also included um, in detail how witches had these alleged powers to be able to transport themselves from place to place, create living things, make animals talk, and even make the dead reappear. It also goes into how potentially the witches would sort of use religion to heal the sick and went into kind of the differences between demonics and the bewitched, as well as other sort of subjects that dealt with the realm of the supernatural. So it was more of kind of like a encyclopedia or manual really kind of directed towards people who are going to be hunting witches, how to stay safe, how to kind of reverse a spell um, that, that, that might be cast on you and, and how to point out a witch. And, you know, of course, it talked about different things to kind of keep an eye out for, one of them being the Hand of Glory. Then again, in a text called Les Secrets, well, this is, it's got a French title, so I'm just going to give you the English translation rather than trying to pronounce it in French, because that would be, uh, well, that'd be tragic. Well, maybe not tragic, but certainly embarrassing. Okay, in English, the title translates to The Mystical Secrets of the Natural Magic of Little Albert. It's commonly known as Petit Albert. It was originally published in 1722, and it's what they call a grimoire of natural and Kabbalistic magic. Essentially, it's a collection of recipes, talismans, and occult secrets that was kind of written by several different authors and then kind of compiled together by a narrator who went by a pseudonym. To the Catholic Church at the time, it was a book of black magic. Simple. I mean, that's it. But, you know, having a stance like that, I think, as do a lot of historians, that that really kind of helped to catapult its popularity among everyone from nobles to farmers, even priests. It in itself actually has a pretty rad history in the sense that it was what we would consider nowadays to be a viral phenomenon. This book was sold by street peddlers and while extremely controversial due to the the contents, it was relatively indistinguishable to the common almanac that was typically sold. So it sold like hotcakes. And what's cool is the profile of the reader wasn't meant to be like a sorcerer. Actually, it was really kind of written for the common everyday guy or gal. I think just like anything, the reasons why it gained popularity so quickly and and spread throughout Europe so quickly, you know, might be more complex than, look, it had some naughty stuff inside it, and we'll get to that in just a second. And also the church says, hey, avoid this book. Don't read it. Well, what's that going to do? That's going to, you know, curiosity is going to really fuel part of it. And then word of mouth is going to do the rest. So its contents included secrets to things like sexual magic, like ways to obtain romantic love, seduction, and even to make a woman dance naked. It had tips on how to improve your crops every year, how to deal with different 
inconveniences such as like pests that are trying to um, kill your your chickens or you know insects trying to destroy your crops it also had cooking recipes and other recipes for daily life such as soap or fragrances and ways to help people or horses to move quickly without getting tired other parts of the book had alchemical and Kabbalist theories including how to you know make gold artificially for example how to dissolve gold how to turn lead into gold how to create fake money using tin and how to create imitation pearls and of course the instructions for making your very own hand of glory you know because of its various topics it's pretty clear that the intended target audience here was really pretty broad and it was regardless of their social standing the hand of glory just as an example was an instrument that was really appreciated by burglars more on that in in just a second the soap recipes and perfume recipes which included many expensive ingredients from around the world were more important to you know the higher end of the the class structure there and and you know ladies of court if you will And, of course, what 18th century man wasn't constantly on the lookout for some seedy romantic advice? Eh, mon chéri. Well, I guess my French accent isn't too terrible. Just as a simple illustration of, uh, or that, you know, kind of speaks to its popularity, copies of Le Petit Albert have been located among among the 19th century French peasantry, hoodoo practitioners of New Orleans, and the Obia men of the French West Indies. It's kind of like that book, you know, that one of your friends told you about when you were a kid, and everyone knows you shouldn't read it, but you just got to see what everybody's talking about. And I think that's what happened here. So as you dig through this book, and much like you heard at the top of the show, there was a precise methodology on how to make the hand of glory. Interestingly, interestingly enough, or I guess even ironically, it said that it was originally designed by witches to protect themselves from thieves. And then later, it's now being used by thieves as a means to aid in successful robberies. Even beyond what you heard earlier in the show, the actual instructions are far more detailed and bizarre. I mean, let's just sidestep for just a second here. And let's talk about how potentially commonplace, I just can't get this out of my head here, how commonplace it was to just see freaking severed hands everywhere back then. I I mean, I, I just imagine myself walking down the street, looking up at the big, beautiful blue sky as a man at the beginning of his 40s, you know, just grateful to be alive and well at such an old age. Keep in mind, Back in this time, the life expectancy was between 30 and 40 years. I'm just grateful to be alive. I look over to my left. Oh my. The uh, the beans depot over here has a hand in the window. Well, I guess they finally caught that chap that robbed them, huh? And maybe I just want to kind of wash the 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 
complexity of the day away by having a pint with my close friends at my at our favorite pub and you walk in there and there's a you know wrinkled old hand hanging from the ceiling i mean i just i mean with with the popularity of this book I can only imagine that every time somebody was hanged in town, there was just this mad dash to be the one to, you know, chop off their hand and get to work making one of these hands of glory. The lore behind the hand of glory does vary a bit. I mean, from the specific instructions, I think mainly due to the different translations and interpretations uh, being kind of a bit different over the years, but also... It differs with what the actual supernatural powers or properties it would have. Here are a few of the interpretations or explanations of its power. After these messages, we'll be right back. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. America's future can be determined by our dreams and our visions. It was very for over 200 years, there have been reports of giant man-like creatures from another dimension, another world, I don't know. The most intriguing mystery on the North American continent. Hey, this is Bryce Johnson from the Bigfoot Collectors Club, and you're listening to Tyler and Woody on That Would Be Rad, because that is rad. Okay, let's dive into these uh, explanations of the, the powers of the Hand of Glory. First, and probably most common, is that the clenched hand is used as a candle holder, with the candle held between the bent fingers. Its power was to render whoever you presented it to completely motionless. It would put to sleep anyone that was awake in the house and rendered them in a coma-like state until the flames were extinguished, which, by the way, it could only be put out with milk. Any other liquid would only embolden its flame, including water, which I guess makes sense if they used like a fat as the fuel source for the candle. You know, in a lot of the instructional kind of directions on how to make one some of them would kind of be as grotesque as actually using the fat from the dead man kind of gross another one was that the hand would give light to only the holder casting everyone else into darkness kind of essentially making that person invisible another one said that any lock could be opened in and around the vicinity where the hand was lit and then kind of less fantastical really in the in the scheme of things i guess is that the hand of glory could burn forever without you know perishing it was just like a uh, eternal light that you could use the hand itself would most often be used as a candle though sometimes could be used as a candle holder 
So it didn't just differ in the powers, how to make it, but also what it looked like. In another version, such as the hand at the Whitby Museum in England, all five fingers of an outstretched hand were lit. It was believed that if one of the fingers did not light, the burglars saw this as a sign that someone in the house that they were about to rob or the building or whatever was still awake. And yes, you heard that correctly. While there are a few dead man's hands here and there throughout the world, like the church in Prague I mentioned earlier, an actual hand of glory is kept at the Whitby Museum in North Yorkshire, England, with an inscription dated 1823 outlining its version of the how-to guide to make one. It says, It must be cut from the body of a criminal on the gibbet, pickled in salt, and the urine of man, woman, dog, horse, and mare, smoked with herbs and hay for a month, hung on an oak tree for three nights running, then laid at a crossroads, then hung on a church door for one night while the maker keeps watch in the porch. And if it be that no fear hath driven you forth from the porch, then the hand be true one, and it be yours. And so essentially I think this museum in York in North Yorkshire, England, just entered my mm, top five places to go visit. I don't know. Since the viral sensation of Petit Albert brought with it a more uh um what's the word I'm looking for? Um kind of universal awareness about the hand of glory there have been countless reports by its victims all across Europe from Spain to England the Netherlands even Germany references in pop culture didn't end in the 18th and 19th centuries no 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 no. they're alive and well my friends in our own time You might have recognized it in a lot of the things that you've either read, seen, or or heard. The Hand of Glory has made its way into comics. And Tyler's going to be happy about this one because he's always saying that I need to just read all of these. Hellboy's Box Full of Evil and Being Human, both by Mike Mignola, and also in Grant Morrison's Invisibles, among several others. You'll find references to it in songs like one by the Smithereens, TV shows like Supernatural, of course, and books and movies like Harry Potter. So see if you can spot it the next time you give all those movies a viewing. It's also been in a number of video games, and if you don't think I'm going to add this to my next D&D campaign as a magic item that can be found by the players, well, I don't know what to tell you. In fact, I might even make it like some kind of like a, like a cursed object too, so maybe the players think it's awesome at first, then something bad happens. Anyhow... I digress. Nerd alert! Okay, listener, this is the moment in today's show where you, in real time, get to be a witness to the way some of our show topics somehow become unexpectedly bridged or linked with a previous episode. It's a moment that, you know, when we're doing our research for an upcoming show, literally makes my mind explode. And truthfully, it's one of my favorite things that can happen. There's this like rad moment of clarity. It's just so unexpected that it typically causes either myself or Tyler to call the other and say, bro, you will not believe what I just uncovered. Doing the show on my own the past few weeks, although not as fun as obviously having my best bro alongside me, 
has given me the unique opportunity, though, to present to Tyler right now, who's listening to this episode at the very same time that you are, this connection between this episode that we're doing and my new obsession with true crime and another one of our episodes. Okay, here goes. Seventy-nine years ago, April of 1943, as Nazi bombs rained down on wartime Britain, four boys were wandering through Hagley Woods near Birmingham, England. They were in search for animals to hunt, finding it nearly impossible to survive on the World War II food rations they had been given. One of the boys spotted an elm tree and thought they might find some bird eggs inside its hollow trunk but they didn't find any bird eggs. Instead, he and his friends pulled out a human skull, which of course prompted them to run away in pure terror. They quickly told their parents, who then quickly alerted the police. Inside that hollow tree trunk lay a severely decomposed human body little more than just a skeleton. Tattered fragments of the victim's clothing, cheap imitation costume jewelry, and a shoe were around the remains. The skeleton was complete, except for one thing. The woman's severed right hand was found 40 feet away. Aside from these few clues, There was no solid evidence that could identify the body, and until an autopsy was performed, there was no real way of knowing how long it had been hidden inside this witch elm. The autopsy indicated that she had light brown hair and had given birth to one child. Her skeleton measured just five feet in height. While these facts were all crucial to the investigation, determining the exact cause of her end was far more difficult than the authorities had anticipated. A wad of fabric had been stuffed inside the victim's mouth, and the pathologist concluded she had died from asphyxiation. He estimated her age to be 35, and the time of death to be approximately 18 months prior to the discovery of the body, October 1941. The police scoured missing person reports from all over the country, but with no success. They even failed to identify her from dental records, and there were no labels found on any of the clothing. The woman's identity remained a total mystery. There may be a clue in the date of the murder, however. In October 1941, early in the Second World War, German bombers regularly targeted industrial sites around Birmingham. There was a constant threat of invasion, and so people had a heightened sense of observation. They were always on the lookout for Nazi planes or parachutes in the sky. A British soldier of the Home Guard recounted to authorities that he had found a parachute near Hagley Wood sometime in the fall of 1941. 
He also remembered seeing what he described as a suspicious looking car parked in the woods near where the parachute had come down. In 1953, a local newspaper even received an anonymous letter claiming the murder victim was a Dutch woman who had been working as a Nazi agent. Allegedly, she was part of a spy ring that acted as forward air controllers for German aircraft. There is some evidence that the story was taken seriously by MI5, the United Kingdom's counterintelligence security agency, but there's not really anything that shows up under any official action being taken, except perhaps a cover-up of the truth. The skeleton, with its potentially valuable forensic evidence, disappeared under mysterious circumstances. After the autopsy, the pathologist sent the remains to Birmingham University for safekeeping, but there's no record the university ever received them. The police have refused to allow private investigators or journalists access to the case files. One of the strangest twists in the case came in December of 1943, eight months after the discovery of the body. An anonymous graffiti artist scrawled a cryptic message on the wall of a building on Upper Dean Street in central Birmingham. It said, Who put Bella in the witch elm? Soon after, a second piece of graffiti appeared in town reading, Hagley Wood Bella. Both pieces of graffiti seemed to be written by the same person. More graffiti soon began to appear. By then, the spelling had been subtly and spookily altered from Witch Elm, which is spelled W-Y-C-H, to Witch, W-I-T-C-H, Elm. The graffiti is remarkable in that it gives the previously unidentified victim a name, Bella. The name was commonly associated with witches, actually, as shortened from Belladonna. The body really was found in a witch elm, a tree that also has associations with witchcraft, even though the word witch, the way it's spelled, derives historically from wicker rather than the word witch as in witchcraft. In pagan traditions, the sound of a word is as important as its original meaning. Witch elm conjures up images of witchcraft just as witchberry does. Bella echoes Belladonna. And Hagley echoes Hag. As a matter of fact, Hagley Wood had strong associations with paganism and witchcraft, and it's been documented that witches' Sabbaths were regularly held there before the war. This connection with witchcraft and the occult was strengthened when a woman named Margaret Murray became involved in the case. Margaret Murray was a philosophy professor and folklorist at University College of London and theorized that the real answer to Bella's end lay in the fact that one of her hands was detached from her body, citing, of course, the occult ritual called the Hand of Glory. Then there was Joseph Jacobs, who was captured by the Home Guard near Hagley Wood in January of 1941. He was a German intelligence officer who parachuted into the area and claimed that he was supposed to make contact with a woman named Clara Barelli. Jacobs explained that Barelli had been a German cabaret singer and an actress before being recruited as a spy by the Nazis. 
After thoroughly interrogating Jacobs, authorities determined that he could not be released and he was slain by firing squad. Jacobs was the last person to perish at the Tower of London. One question lingered, however. Could the remains found in Hagley Wood be this Clara who never managed to rendezvous with Jacobs? Further research revealed that Clara Borelli was a real person. She was a cabaret singer and an actress who had performed in both Germany and England. For a time, it seemed that she vanished without a trace in 1941, with no film credits or concert appearances to be found. She also would have been 35 in 1941. The same age the pathologist determined the remains in the Witch Elm to be. However, the release of, quote, long-lost German records has since indicated that Borelli, although real, had actually perished in Germany in 1942. And for some, this largely put this theory to rest. But if you research those records and look at them a little closely, even that is pretty suspect. Why was the woman found in the tree never identified? And why were the authorities so secretive about what they knew of the case? If you're a longtime listener or Tyler, as you're listening to this, I'm sitting here wondering if you've been able to connect the dots yet between this and another case that's eerily so similar. I'm talking, of course, about Season 2, Episode 21, Chrissy Vin and the Ghosts of Allison Road. In that episode, we tell the tragic story of a young girl named Chrissy Vin who was found in Tasmania, stuffed inside a hollow tree. Body dismembered and cloth shoved in her mouth. Now, this occurred in Tasmania, of course, many, many, many miles south of Birmingham, Birmingham, England, but it happened in 1921. And although a man was tried for Chrissy Venn's murder, He was quickly found not guilty, and her case remains unsolved 101 years later. I took another look at my notes uh, and research about Chrissy Venn, and the details about her remains were relatively vague and also differing. I I couldn't determine if she had a hand missing or anything like that. Brendan, our listener in Tasmania who submitted the story to us, if you're listening, bro, Let us know if there's any local lore or additional info in that regard. But uh, be careful with your inquiries. One thing I did discover, though, was that witch elms and other elms similar do exist in parts of Australia. I couldn't confirm whether or not it was a witch elm that Chrissy Van was found in, but it is super interesting. I mean, the first thing on my mind when I read about Bella was, could this be the same killer or killers who 20 years earlier killed Chrissy Venn? In that episode, we also discussed a secret society possibly being linked to Chrissy Venn's Tasmanian murder. Was this part of some occult ritual originating from the lore of the Hand of Glory? 
Was this the same organization involved with Bella's death? I mean, perhaps these are answers that we'll never know. But the mystery and the unintentional connection, this synchronicity between these two episodes, and these two topics, is just baffling. Could we somehow be the community that cracks this case? And that would be pretty rad. Okay, I'm dying to know, what do you think about all of this? I know we covered a lot today, but that's what happens when you open up one door into these stories of rad strangeness. I had literally zero idea the rabbit trail that this would lead us down. But I gotta say, I'm certainly glad we went down it together. And honestly, I can't believe that I was able to keep myself from ruining the surprise for Tyler, who, like I said earlier, listened to this the same time that you're listening to this. So that was that was awesome. I really do want to know what your thoughts are about this all. Is there a connection What are your thoughts about these old (laughs) things in our human history that are just so bizarre? I mean, they're so crazy that they just seem like it just seems fictional, right? I mean, the fact is, whether or not these items have power, there was a time when people believed it. And even more so, specifically with the Hand of Glory, there was a time when people were following these crazy instructions on how to make one. I'm so curious to know what you think about it all. And also, do you have a story of Rad Strangeness that you want to share with us and our fellow listeners? I mean, part of my own personal obsession is reading about or learning about these stories that I have zero previous knowledge on. And I feel like no matter where you are in the world listening to this show, there's probably something that seems relatively sort of commonplace or... Um, it's just so deeply, uh, ingrained in your own personal zeitgeist, wherever you live that you feel like, ah, it's not that big of a deal. I'm sure they've heard of it. Uh, uh-uh. we'd love to hear it. And honestly, the best way to do that is via email. You can send your written story or even like a voice memo to our email address, which is that would be rad pod at gmail.com. And if you just want to interact with us, you know, tell us about a cool movie you watched, uh, how to stream your favorite episodes of Columbo or Family Ties, or you have a book suggestion, or even something that you want us to kind of look into as far as topics go, then you can catch us on Instagram at That Would Be Rad. Really, that's the best kind of place to interact with us day to day, as well as kind of get a little deeper into any and all of the topics that we talk about uh, on our show. If you're feeling especially caffeinated today, then there are three ways you can help us keep this show alive. Number one, it would mean the world to us if you took five to 10 seconds out of your day and dropped us a five-star review on whatever podcast platform you're listening to us on. And number two, if you checked out our merch store or bought us a coffee, those links are in the show notes, but they're also in our Instagram bio. Or third, you could spread the love. Just tell one of your friends, coworkers, family members about our show. Any or all of those things that I just mentioned really does make an incredible difference. And it really helps us to continue to do what we do every single week. So thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for being patient the past couple of weeks. I hope I haven't tortured you too much with my ramblings. 
But that's it for me from our studio here in the beautiful North Georgia mountains. We love you. We appreciate you. And as always, be rad. That's the way it Future would be a parade of flowers